Where are you from? These hordes of Asian people. And then all of a sudden, when I'm about to like reach an epiphany, Hey everyone, you're listening to What's the Bubble Tea. I'm your co-host, Hilary Valenzuela. And my name is Philippe Tao, and thank you so much for tuning into another week of our episode. Uh, like always, whenever you tune in on iTunes, we'd appreciate it if you could leave uh, any reviews, star us, hate comments, we love it all. We're also on social media, so follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Um, our Twitter is What's the Bubble Tea with a capital T, and then Facebook and Instagram mm-hmm. um, are both just What's the Bubble Tea. So we have a lot to jump into this week, right? Yeah, a lot has happened since the last time that we recorded. Mm-hmm. Um, so on a serious note, if y'all have been listening to us since the beginning, um, if you remember our mental health episode, which was our second episode, we had a guest, AC. Recently, actually on April 29th, um, AC's brother passed away um, due to suicide. And so we just ask that all of our listeners keep AC's family um, in their thoughts. And also there's a GoFundMe page. It's been posted on our Twitter. So just to cover funeral costs and um, just to help support the family and honor his life. His name is Aaron. Uh, so we just want to keep the, him and them, the family in our thoughts. Um, but yeah, like we said, a lot of bubble tea to spill this week. So we figured we'd just dedicate this whole episode to discussing a wide range of topics that have popped up in the news, current events, and pop culture in the past week. Uh, the first one is Issa Rae's paragraph about black women dating Asian men. Uh, back in 2015, three years ago, she wrote her book, The Misadventures of Awkward Black Girl, which was based on her web series and turned into the HBO show Insecure. And... There was a paragraph that she wrote that recently um, was posted on Twitter and have re- it's received a lot of backlash and attention in the past few days. She wrote, uh, in quotes, This is why I propose that black women and Asian men join forces in love, marriage, and procreation, Ray wrote. Educated black women, what better intellectual match for you than an Asian man? And I'm not talking about Filipinos. They're like the black of Asians. I'm talking Chinese, Vietnamese, Japanese, etc. So, uh, lots of back in that quote, but basically a lot of people are upset that she called Filipinos the Blacks of Asians, and I think um, this opens dialogue to lots of wider mm-hmm. topics like, you know, desirability politics, but also anti-Blackness in Asian circles. Mm-hmm. And I think it's it's good to gain context of who Issa is. So if you're not familiar with Issa's work, she's a comedian, um, and she has her own show on HBO. She's super successful. But first and foremost, like, she's a comedian. And her, so um, a lot of the backlash that she's receiving is a lot of people taking what she wrote at face value. Mm-hmm. Um, and also a lot of people are saying that what she wrote is satirical, and it, it was written to make a point. Um, And it's going back to when we talked about in our fetishization episode about um, Asian men and like black women being the least desirable and like dateable people, according to like the OkCupid study that was done a few years ago. Um, And I think she's really just kind of talking about that and bringing that to light because that is something that um, both groups experience. Um, And also Issa is not the only person that said this. Like, Mm -hmm. um, I don't know if anyone if any of our listeners listen to Childish Gambino, but he raps a lot about how, like, uh, Filipino women are, like, the black people of 
Asia, basically, but in more of like a fetish fetishizing way. Mm-hmm. But it's it's not something that Issa just like drew out of thin air. Like like we Filipino people have been referred to as like the black people of Asia um, for a while, um, and it's not even just due to skin color, but like culturally, um, you know, Filipinos tend to be like more into things like hip hop and like black culture and like have um, more proxi- like closer proximity to it. And it is also the fact that we are darker Asians, like we're Southeast Asian. Um, and so I think it makes us kind of think about for the people who read what Issa wrote, um, like ch- kind of ask ourselves like why why are we offended by what she wrote? You know, it, she's talking about blackness and like the proximity that Filipinos have to blackness and thinking about like why is that offensive? It's it's basically saying that like proximity like close proximity to blackness is like a negative thing, right? And she's kind of like playing on that joke, um, but it's very real. Um, it's very like the anti-blackness in the Asian community as a whole is it's there. You've it's just seen not it. addressed. It's not addressed. Really. I'm sure that if you're an Asian American, you've probably heard your parents say some anti-black shit, like you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think. With Issa's um, commentary on that, like, she's not saying it to be malicious or anything. Mm-hmm. I think, like, she's, like, restating a joke or something that has been known for mm-hmm. so long now. Um, and so, I think, like you said, a lot of people are just taking it at face value. And to kind of answer the question, like, why is proximity to blackness shameful or undesirable? And it does speak to the anti-blackness in the Asian communities. And I think um, what I was thinking a lot about, too, is kind of, I know we've talked a lot about the model minority myth mm-hmm. so many times and kind of to uh, elaborate a little bit more for people who didn't listen to the past episodes, but it was basically this concept coined by white people to pit Asians and um, black people against each other to make Asian people see as the desirable uh, minority group, mm-hmm. like affluential, successful, and black people, instead of like protesting in the streets for civil rights, can um, aspire to be like Asian Americans. And I think a big reason for why there's so much anti-blackness in Asian circles is that it's learned through whiteness. Mm-hmm. I think when you sure. when a lot of Asian immigrants moved to America, I think a lot of it was after 1965 when um, the U.S. allowed more immigrants to come to the country. Specifically professional immigrants. Exactly. And so that's yeah. the, even the word professional, that's the thing that a lot of people don't highlight is that they already are moving to the U.S. to pursue higher degrees. Mm -hmm. And so they're coming from a place where they're already highly educated and highly privileged. And so the model minority myth doesn't really work because the Asian immigrants moving to America already have a certain kind of privilege over other minorities in America, specifically um, black communities. Yeah, I think that's super important to talk about because the reason why, like, Asian Americans have that stereotype that we're, like, really successful and we're really wealthy or whatever um, it rings true because we have a different relationship with the United States than other groups do. Like, a lot of black folk here were brought here through slavery. <laughs> so that's already a huge, n- not just injustice, but disadvantage, right? And then, like, Latinos specifically, you know, Mexicans were brought here as agricultural workers and, like, seasonal workers with the intention of bringing them here and then and then taking them back to Mexico. So um, the fact that Asian Americans were able to get visas through like a professional degree already gave Asian Americans the advantage. And that's why we have the the dynamic that exists today. And going back to Issa, I think like the proximity that Filipinos have had to um, blackness 
as a black woman, she is allowed to comment, to critique this thing and to like, you know, kind of make a joke about it because it's bringing her, her experience into it as well. Right. Um, so she's definitely allowed to talk about that. And it's, I don't think her point was to say that Filipinos are undesirable because in, that would, in fact, make her an undesirable person, too, as a black woman, right? That's not what she's saying. She's saying, she's acknowledging that there are, um, there's, like, a, a dichotomy that people don't recognize between East Asians and South and Southeast Asians. Um, we are treated differently. We're treated differently in Asia as well. There's a lot of, um, like, rivalry and a lot of oppression that happens between East Asian groups and Southeast Asians, for example, like Filipinos um, being labor exports and places like Singapore and Hong Kong and being exploited. So these are things that like as Westerners and as Americans, we don't really get to think about a lot because it's not something that's part of our experience. Um, so what Issa is really saying is just like a, a really nuanced thing that I think that East Asians especially need to kind of confront. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe that's why a lot of like reading tweets and all these articles about this whole Issa controversy, a lot of people who were upset by it were East Asian yeah. people. And I think with Issa, like her her joke was just kind of teasing at a more serious issue that mm-hmm. she didn't, she probably didn't elaborate even more. But I mean, to be honest, I haven't read the entire book. Yeah, neither of us, to, to preface, neither of us have actually read the book. No. We've read the excerpt and we've read the commentary. Um, so maybe, you know, that's where, that's where we're coming from. Mm-hmm. Um, but but yeah. what she has to say is really true. So... It is true. And I think in the future, we'll probably have a more focused Mm -hmm. episode on anti-blackness because it's rarely addressed. And I think um, I'm glad that this story came out this week because it was such a good gateway into opening up that Mm -hmm. conversation that a lot of people are uncomfortable to have. Yeah. And I think we also need to kind of talk about, like, um, the issues that Asian Americans are focusing on. And there's a lot of critique on Asian American activism that's like, oh, you guys only talk about representation or you guys only talk about justice when it comes to yourselves. And I think this is a great opportunity to widen that scope mm-hmm. of what we're talking about and confronting issues that are difficult, especially um, in our relationship with other groups, such as black people and um, other immigrant groups and South Asian, South Asian, Southeast Asians and Asian Americans. You know, we're not a monolith. We're all very different from each other. Our cultures are very different. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that what Issa said kind of makes us confront that a little bit more. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And so our next topic, um, this past weekend, Hillary and I had the privilege of attending this event put on by the Northwestern Performance Studies grad program. It was held at the Axis Lab in Uptown here in Chicago, and it was called In Motion, Performance, and Unsettling Borders. And so it was part of this weekend-long performance conference that the Northwestern grad program put on. And at the specific event that we attended, uh, there were four Asian performance artists uh, who had installations and performances. Uh, they were named Magnolia Yang, Kuoma Yang, Helen Lee, and Arum Lee. And it was a really great experience. I think Hillary and I were talking afterward, and for me at least, it was oddly cathartic and emotional, which I didn't expect going into. Um, Because the first two artists were both Hmong American, and so they recreated this, they took the space and they recreated a typical Hmong American household. So you saw a lot of remnants of um, like American furniture, but also uh, stuff from their homeland. And walking into the space, you know, there was a smell of incense burning and uh, they used joss paper to cover up the walls, which in my culture we use to make our shaman shrines, but also to burn as offerings to our ancestors. So it was very nostalgic, and for them, their 
piece was on stateless Hmong women existing in patriarchal structures, which I kind of talked a bit about in our last episode when I talked about um, the Hmong family dynamic. And then Helen Lee did a really great performance about a wide range of things, but the thing that got to me was her relationship with her mother. And she elaborated on how, for her, she can't really speak Korean, but her mom doesn't really speak English as well. So it's about trying to build a relationship when you don't speak the same language as your mother and not feeling seen by them. Yeah. Yeah, I just... I'm not from any of the cultures that were represented in this in this exhibit, which I think was really, um, I really appreciated that. Because um, in my Chicago life, <laughs> in my Chicago experience, I've just been very immersed in the Filipino community. Um, and so it was kind of cool to see just the timeline of things, like how I met Philippe. And then when we started this podcast, I had no idea. I had no, like anything about Hmong culture and the fact that I got to see this art installation um and like get to know a little bit more and um into into Hmong culture and like Philippe's background was super fascinating um and really really eye-opening and very beautiful um and I resonated even with a lot of it you know just seeing the installation of the home uh when you walked in there was like this pile of shoes (laughs) and it just emulated like you know, a lot of, like, Asian cultures and, like, immigrant homes, you have to take off your shoes before you enter the home. Um, and that's something that I experienced as well. And so it just, it, it all felt very familiar, even though it's not a culture that I know very well. But um, just to see that was really moving. Mm-hmm. Um, and the Axis Lab as a space, mm-hmm. I would like to talk a bit about it. Because yeah. it was really, it's such a great space what they do. So, um, like I said, it's located right off the Argyle Red Line stop in uptown Chicago. And that spot, that spot culturally has a lot of... Vietnamese immigrants who who lived there and in the past years and currently there's like the slow process of gentrification and mm-hmm. um, like right when you walk through you just smell like all of the Vietnamese food from all of the Vietnamese restaurants mm-hmm. and you see Vietnamese families everywhere and so the Axis Lab I don't know exactly when it was started but they took this empty storefront underneath the train station and turned it into kind of an exhibit to host shows like the one we went to but also our galleries and they really work toward community engagement with the Vietnamese American community that resides in Uptown. And the sad thing is um, Chicago has a plan to remodel the north side train stations. And so in the next few months, they're actually tearing down the Axis Lab and redoing the whole station, mm-hmm. um, which is going to di- further displace a lot of the immigrant families that live there. And so when the host um, or the the MC or moderator, she was talking talking about this. Uh, she was saying how it really resembles the immigrant experience because you never know how long you're going to be in a certain space, but you just try to make it home or whatever home means to you. Yeah, it was super symbolic even of the exhibit that was there, mm-hmm. of, of statelessness and migration and displacement. And so the fact that this exhibit was had in a space that is not permanent that is going to cause further displacement was just extremely symbolic and really sad mm-hmm. um and eye-opening and it was really grounding um uh, for me because i didn't know that i didn't know Same. that that place that access lab was going to be you know taken over by the city and basically destroyed um and even that because you know a lot of gentr- a lot of t- or uh, conversations around gentrification um, 
it's a, it's kind of centered around the south side and west side, which is, that's that's so real. Like, gentrification is really, really hitting those places very hard. Um, but it's also, we need to talk about, you know, the the immigrant and, like, refugee communities on the north side, like, in uptown, um, that are going to be displaced as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, because I think when you think of demographics, the north side is often seen as just very white. Yeah. So people of color are smaller. Min- <laughs> yeah, so, small, so, like, minority groups in the north side tend to get overlooked. Um, and so our next hot topic. <laughs> we have uh, so many today. <laughs> yes. So this one kind of has to do with me. Um, last week, I made a really stupid internet meme poking fun at the whole boyfriend twin phenomenon, more specifically with uh, white gays and how they only date each other that or people that look like them. And so I found like a white gay couple that looked like each other and I photoshopped them onto an Animorphs book. Like mo- slowly morphing <laughs> into each other, like becoming yes. the same person. Almost. And then I posted it on Twitter and didn't really think much of it. And it blew up um, and got a lot of backlash from white gays, which is no surprise. But basically, a lot of the backlash was saying, uh, other than personal attacks, calling me like a bitter single gay. But a lot of it was saying, you know, why are you poking fun at people who are just minding their own business? Or why are you so bitter that you're not being seen or validated by white gays? And for me, like I posted it as a joke, because honestly, the whole boyfriend twin phenomenon is a funny subject to joke about but what i didn't expect was that uh it would open up larger conversations to you know desirable desirability whiteness and what that really means it's more specifically among the gay community and it was also really interesting seeing other people of color come come to my defense but also offer their own hot takes um like one of them said something along the lines of you know the people who are offended by this joke are the same ones who aren't doing anything to demolish the systems of power that um, make white gays emblematic of the of the gay community. And there is something to be said about white gays only dating other people who look like them because, you know, Western features are seen as the ideal beauty standard, right? So yeah, it was just really funny to me, but I'm happy that it opened up lots of conversations. And I think I did, I kind of learned a lesson from this too, in the sense that I shouldn't be more unapologetic about what I have to I have to say and not catering toward a white audience to mm-hmm. and you know tone policing my own voice in order to accommodate for someone's white fragility. Right. And I think it like if you're in a position of privilege and as Asian Americans, I'm gonna say that, you know, Philippe and I do have a lot of privilege. Like we're we're college oh, yeah. students, right? So, you know, people who hold a lot of privilege, I think it's important to ask yourself, ourselves, why we feel offended by certain things. Kind of like the whole Issa Rae thing, too. Right, exactly. And also, I think an important thing to know is when people are critiquing whiteness, they're not critiquing the individual person. They're Mm -hmm. critiquing it as a system or a structure of power. And so, you know, as a white person, you might get offended by what I have to say about whiteness. But at the end of the day, not everything revolves around you. It's not about you as an individual. And I think that is something that people need to keep in mind when they're, you know, the systems that they're part of is being critiqued. So that was, that was quite the day. (laughs) But um, our next one is about Crazy Rich Asians, which has been a huge hot topic in the Asian American community in the past week since the first trailer came out. The movie doesn't come out until August 17th, but it's based on the same book uh, by Kevin Kwan. And the premise of the story is um, about this 
it's about like the 0.1% elite in Singapore. They're super rich, they live a lavish lifestyle, have lots of nice clothes, and the protagonist, Nick Young, is the heir to the family fortune. And so he brings his American-born Chinese girlfriend, who's played by Constance Wu, to Singapore to meet his family. And, you know, the story follows them disapproving of her because she's not from the same class as them. Um, I had the book, and I unfortunately left it at a gay bar. Uh, so I never finished it. But, you know, as someone who is really into film and media and is always advocating for more representation, you know, seeing the trailer was a huge monumental moment for me personally. And I know a lot of people who have been tweeting saying that it's been for them as well. But there is also an, a whole other side that even I didn't think of. Yeah. So for us here in the United States and as Westerners, like seeing Asians on the big screen is not something that we're used to. Um, we just don't see it. Like, you know, we're like either like a token character or a singular character, but to have like a whole cast of like Asian people is like, whoa. Because it's the first <laughs> full Asian cast in the Hollywood movies since... Yeah, Jello and Club. it's not a foreign film. It's a Hollywood film, mm-hmm. you know? So that's something that is really exciting for us. But also, I discovered a a Singaporean scholar and writer named Sankita Tanapal, and she's uh, South Asian, and she coined the term Chinese privilege. Um, and this kind of goes into a lot of cultural and historical context. So I'm sure that when you think of Singapore you think of Singaporeans as, like, East Asian people, like, of Chinese descent, of East Asian descent. Um, But really, Singapore is a really, really racially and ethnically diverse place. It's filled with Southeast Asians, East Asians, South Asians, um, and that's due to colonization, right? When places are diverse, you go back in history, um, and you see a history of colonization. And so basically, Sangito is saying that... um, Crazy Rich Asians is only representing the Chinese population of Singapore, even though they have such a rich um, population of South Asians and Southeast Asians. Um, she This is an excerpt that she wrote on her blog. She has a blog on Medium, um, and she wrote that, she wrote that uh, people in the global north, especially Americans, have no real understanding of the complications and nuances of race in other parts of the world. And I think as... Um, like, second-generation people who grew up in America, I think, like, thinking on a global level is something that we need to push ourselves towards. And so reading her blog and her writings uh, was really eye-opening for me because I had no idea. Um, And so she talks about how um, Muslims and, like, non-Chinese people, specifically women in Singapore, um, are left out of the workplace, um, are just systematically oppressed, really. Um, And she draws a lot of parallels between... Uh, of race in Singapore and in the United States that for people, for Westerners to kind of understand the kind of dynamics that are happening there through our lens so it's easier for us to kind of digest. Um, She says that Mali Muslims are told they cannot be trusted in the military Um, and then she said this is really ironic when you think about the fact that Malays are indigenous to the land Um, and she, she refers to uh, the Chinese people as, like, settlers and as, uh, like, colonial Chinese. So she's really, um, and when I think about, like, the activism that's happening here, like, we talk, we kind of frame whiteness in the same way of, Mm -hmm. you know, like, white, whiteness as, like, the settler colony. And, um, so just drawing those parallels. And so I think it's just important to 
like, yeah, we can understand that representation is super exciting for us, but there are, we should, like, do further research, right? And we're not saying, like, watch Crazy Rich Asians or don't watch Crazy Rich Asians. Um, I think I just want to provide a context of what is happening and what um, people from Singapore are really saying. Yeah, because, like, demographically, you know, 74% of Singapore is Chinese, and then you have, like, mm-hmm. the Malay population, which is, like, 15%, and then 7%. Indian. And so some of the criticism about Crazy Rich Asians based on the trailer was like, where are all the brown faces? And people even noted that the only brown people they saw in the movie were playing roles as servants or opening the doors for the East Asian characters. Um, Wow, that sounds familiar. (laughs) I know, exactly. And I think when people talk about this film, it's really, you kind of have to speak about it more specifically it's not an asian american film or not an asian american cast because a lot of the people in it aren't asian american but also people in it are east asian and that cater it caters toward a specific kind of representation mm-hmm. um and i know for me like i'm super excited about the film but i think it's also like hillary said important to have this kind of context so that you can still enjoy art but know that it comes at other people's expense right always be critical mm-hmm. i think is what we're trying to say here yeah and then there's also the whole thing where people were calling crazy rich asians the asian black panther and i know that sparked a lot of outrage online um for me i don't think you should be calling it the asian black panther because both are completely different mm-hmm. i think for crazy rich asians it's a huge stepping stone toward asian representation in uh, american media and hollywood but it's not meant to it's not meant to be revolutionary in the sense that it's dealing with larger conversations on race and society. I think it is revolutionary that you see an Asian couple in a rom-com, but it's not trying to be more than that. Um, Right, even like looking at the storylines of each, I mean, Black Panther is a superhero movie. It's like about empowerment, Mm -hmm. right? And like Crazy Rich Asians is a story about the 1% of the elite class. So in that way, it's not revolutionary at all. Like the context of the of the book and the movie isn't a, aren't really about revolutionary things, mm-hmm. um, especially when you look at the context of like racism that's happening in Singapore. Um, so representation does not necessarily mean empowerment or revolutionary thinking, really. Um, that's true. But yeah, I mean, go see it yeah. if you want to. I, I think, think it's pretty cool that, you know, it's not a foreign film. It's a Hollywood film, mm-hmm. um, which is, you know, we haven't ever seen that, I don't think. Not in all like, the cast in a Hollywood Yeah, movie. I mean, the last time was Jola Club, which came out before we were even born. So it's weird to think that oh, yeah. it's like the first time in 25 years, first time in our lives that we've seen an all-Asian cast in an American Hollywood movie. Um, and one more thing about, like, the whole Asian Black Panther thing, I think it reminded me a lot of how, um, you know... Black culture is often appropriated in a lot of Asian communities. And mm-hmm. I was reading something written by um, The Love Life of an Asian Guy, which is a Facebook page where this Asian um, activist is super outspoken on social issues all over the place. So you should check him out. But he wrote something a while back about uh, appropriating black cu- blackness and black culture and Asian culture. And for him, he said it's seen as it's understandable that people would appropriate blackness because it's seen kind of as a way to assimilate into American culture because, you know, as an Asian person, you're constantly othered. And so you could either continue being othered or be like all the other people. And so a lot of people gravitate toward, you know, stereotypical um, 
what you think of stereotypically as black culture, like basketball and hip hop and rap music, mm-hmm. kind of as a uh, vehicle into assimilating to American culture. But then where it does go wrong is when the Asian person appropriating the culture sides with whiteness mm-hmm. and then internalizes the uh, anti-blackness while still uh, participating in black culture. Yeah, I think always going back to the relationship between Asian American communities and the black community, even back to the civil rights movement, like we would not have the Asian American movement without the black power movement. Mm-hmm. They, Asian American like liberation came from the ideologies and the theories and the activists that of the civil rights area that were of the black power movement. So we really owe so much of our knowledge and our liberation and our power to the black people of, of the United States. Yeah, and so by labeling Crazy Rich Asians as Asian Black Panther, it's kind of like you have Black Panther and all of these films featuring all black casts, and so we're just kind of riding on the coattails of them and using exactly. and using Black Panther or their movies as our vehicle into Hollywood, which is I don't think is the way to go about it. Like, you can have Black Panther and Crazy Rich Asians both exist. It's not that there's just in their room own for one. In, in their own yeah. way, yeah, as their own, not just... Mm-hmm. There's only one slot for uh, right. a multiracial or ethnic cast in Hollywood. But yeah, and I think it also, given all the criticism that we were talking about, like you, you, like I said earlier, you can, it is possible to experience and enjoy art while it's, even if it's transgressive. I think a lot of people today are really quick to be like, oh, that's canceled, or I can't like that because there's one inkling of problematic, something mm-hmm. problematic about it. And I think you're really doing a disservice to yourself because... You can still achieve affective value through art that is still transgressive. Like a few weeks ago, Molly Ringwald wrote a piece for, um, I think it was The New Yorker. And if you know Molly Ringwald, like she was huge in the 80s. And yeah, and all the John Hughes films. And she wrote this really great piece about looking back on all of the films she did with John Hughes and, and looked at it through the lens of the Me Too movement because she highlighted how a lot of John Hughes's uh, characters were, you know, misogynistic and sexist, and there were lots of racist portrayals like Long Duck Dung and people of color in his films. And so she was kind of asking the question, how do you still enjoy this art, and especially if you helped create it? Um, but I think by being quick to cancel or boycotting or not, being willing to engage in these types of mediums, um, you're just being passive and erasing an opportunity where you can learn from it. Um, Because essentially that's what art is. Yeah, you're allowed to exist in this world and be critical of it. Um, It doesn't mean that you should cut yourself off from the world either. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that's just part of, you know, being an active citizen of society and being responsible of your role, of your role as uh, someone who wants to make social change as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. Well, that's our episode for today, guys. I know we talked about a range of topics. <laughs> if you ever want to enter into discussion with us, you know, DM us or like comment and like leave a review and let us know, you know, if you have an argument to make, please do. Mm-hmm. Um, we'd love to hear from you. Like we love engaging with people in right. our DMs all the time. And, you know, if you have something you would like to bring to the table, you know, you're almost always more than welcome to be a guest on the show as well. So hit those likes on our social media and engage with us. Thanks, guys. Bye. Bye. And then all of a sudden, when I'm about to, like, reach an epiphany, Jing Chong, I'm to talk.